are in Genesis chapter 38. We're going to be in Genesis this evening, and it is um, a bit of, it's more of a mature topic. So I see the kids exiting. I would encourage you, if you have anyone watching this evening online, that if there are kids in the room, maybe you want to have them just leave the room or watch it another time. Um, just just to prepare you. It's more of a mature subject. There's some uh, more adult elements in this story that we'll be getting into. So um, if you're not comfortable with your children being in here, that's perfectly understandable. Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 38 if you have your Bibles with you. If not, the text will be on the screen as well. Um, we are continuing in our series, as you see on the screen, Jesus in Genesis, to see where Jesus fits into this story of Genesis. We've seen it even from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman would, um, would come, that, she was prom- that the seed of the woman would come, that was promised. We gain this kind of a historical perspective of how God works out the events of this promise through the lives of his people. We see it in Adam, in Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then as we saw last week, even in Jacob's sons. And we saw the story of Joseph being sold into slavery. So God's bringing about his plan of salvation into the world. And as we've seen countless times so far through the story, nothing will disrupt that plan. And it's not as though God has to react to the decisions and the actions of humans. He is sovereign and providential over all of those things. And so he's moving and working in the actions, the sinful behaviors, even demonic intervention, a supernatural flood, all of these things are happening in this book, and God, through all of it, just continues to move forward with his intentions and his plan. We've seen faithful people that God uses to work out his plan. We've seen sinful people that God has used to work out his plan, and we will see in this chapter sinful people, sinful actions that God will use to bring about and ultimately bring to fulfillment his plan of salvation. Um, Genesis 38, as we get into it, is one of the most, I would say, awkward passages in the Bible to preach or to read. Um, Possibly, there's debate, we even debated on the ride here whether or not it's the most awkward passage in Genesis. Kind of because it's just raw, it's real. Moses doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't stray away from the details of what's happening in this story. And he's not embarrassed by these events. And I won't go so far as to say the story is X-rated or rated mature, because I don't think it's written in a way that's meant for entertainment, like you would see in television or movies. It's just very factual. The way Moses writes this is just not a script. It's just this is how the events worked out in the lives of the people that God has called. And it is unfortunate that it happens on Mother's Day. Sorry about that, happy Mother's Day to everyone. It wasn't intentional that it, we we didn't look at the calendar like Mother's Day, Judah and Tamar, that's the day. No, we didn't do that, it just happened to happen this way, so here we are. And it may be unfortunate timing, but it's not unfortunate that we're in the text because it's important that we wrestle with and work through difficult things. It'd be easy to just skip over this. It'd be easy to jump from Genesis 37 to Genesis 39 and just skip this entire chapter. But all of scripture, 2 Timothy says, is profitable for us. Even this, 
even the awkward texts. And if we skipped over this story, what we're skipping over is really the realities that each of us know all too well at times. This story is a story of sexual misconduct, lies, hypocrisy, abuse, victims. They're not pleasant things, but they're real things. In fact, if I was to say, what are the most popular shows on television right now? I don't, I don't watch a ton of network TV or dramas. It's most likely shows that have scandalous features to them. They're generally the ones that mostly attract people. And so we're okay with it. People watch it there, but then when the Bible talks about it, they're like, eh, should the Bible really be getting into this stuff? The Bible's a real book. It's raw. It deals with the realities of our lives and the things that we wrestle with and the things that we go through. And in many cases, there are more scandalous stories in the Bible than there are any network television could produce. The Bible is a place to be raw and real. It's mature. And we do ourselves a disservice if we just gloss over these things to move on to the good stuff. So mothers, it's Mother's Day. If you are anticipating that traditional Mother's Day sermon, sorry, I don't, I don't mean to disappoint, but I am going to disappoint. But what we will find out through this text, through this chapter, is that this really is a story of a determined mother. And we'll get into that. Our pattern for this evening as we go through it is to read a few verses, make some application, explain some things, move on to a few verses. That's the pattern we'll get into throughout this chapter. So verses one through five, Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore them. We left off last chapter with Joseph being sold into slavery, sold by his brothers, eventually ends up as a slave, text says, in Potiphar's house. There's left, we're left with this cliffhanger of sorts where we don't know what's happening to Joseph, and there's this interlude in chapter 38 talking about Judah's life. And it makes sense that Moses wants to talk about Judah's life because Judah will end up being a very prominent figure in the latter half of this book as we look at the story of Joseph. Judah figures prominently into the story of Joseph at the end. It's also significant because if you think through the history of Israel, Judah, unlike Reuben, who's the firstborn, actually is the one who was blessed. The lion from the tribe of Judah is the description given to Jesus. So the, the line of kings... Jesus ultimately comes from Judah, so there's significance in the long term, in the redemptive history when it comes to Judah. And in the immediate context, what we'll get into and what we'll see is Judah kind of acts like a foil to Joseph. He's a contrast to Joseph, where, as we'll see, Judah falls into sexual immorality. Joseph abstains from sexual immorality when tempted. So he acts as this contrast. So it makes sense then that Moses kind of takes this interlude. He deviates from Joseph's story to talk a little bit about someone who's fairly significant within redemptive history and within the story as a whole. We're not given a timeline in the text. We don't know specifics, but I think it's safe to say that the first five verses go through about 20 years of time at least 
in Judah's life. Chapter 37, we have to assume he's a single man working with his brothers. He goes off away from his brothers and his family. He starts his own family, has multiple children. They grow up, and at least one of them, Ur, is of age to be married. So we have to assume 20, 25 years or so has passed by in just these first five verses. Meanwhile, Joseph, we know, and we'll study further on in future chapters, he's going through slavery, rising in Potiphar's house, ends up in prison, rises up to second in command of the most powerful nation in the world. That's the timeline. These are happening in parallel. So when we come back to Judah later in the book, all of these things have happened to him at this point. He goes and he marries a Canaanite woman, which was against what God commanded for his people. And from there, he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Come to verses 6 through 11. We'll read them. And Judah took a wife from Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for, her, for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. When Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shalah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So this is where the story turns dark. Judah's firstborn son, Ur, marries Tamar, a Canaanite woman. All we know of Ur is what's written about him in this text. He was wicked enough that God killed him. The first person recorded in history that God kills for their individual sin. We know about the flood. We know about different things that God has done. But the first time an individual is called out, that God strikes him dead for his wickedness. You think of all the wickedness that's happened so far in the book of Genesis, and you think, how bad was this dude that God's like, I'm ending you. But he does. Ur dies. And we encounter this strange practice in these verses where Judah comes to his brother and says, fulfill your duty as the brother-in-law. It was common practice in the ancient Near East that if, if a brother died, leaving a widow without a child, so a childless widow, that's the situation that Tamar's in, that the younger brother would come along and he would marry his brother's wife, and that any child produced through that marriage that child would become like the firstborn, would take the place of the older brother. And so while Ur has passed away, Onan is given this responsibility and said, go and do this so that any child that comes would preserve your brother's line. The reason for this was that in, in doing this, Tamar would be cared for, she would be supplied for, the family would retain the wealth within that family, and ultimately that firstborn, that child who represents the firstborn would receive the blessing that the firstborn would receive. This is actually codified in Mosaic law. If you go to Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, it says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his dead brother, that his name 
may not be blotted out of Israel. So what was customary for the time, it was just common practice back then, Moses actually writes down into law and says, this is how you should behave. We actually see this in the story of Ruth, if you're familiar with that story, where Ruth is a childless widow of an Israelite man, and the next of kin is to marry her and assume that responsibility. And if you remember the story, the, the closest relative to her says, no, I'm not going to do that, and actually negotiates with what would be her future husband, Boaz, to take her. So that, that's how all of this is happening. And again, it's meant as simply a way to provide for stability, security, care for this widowed, childless woman, and then keep the wealth within that family. That was the whole purpose of doing this. You know, Tamar isn't in a situation today. It doesn't make sense for us today. Tamar, as a widow with no child, had no means to go get a job and care for herself. Unlike today, a single woman, widow or not, can go and make a living, can go earn wage, can go live by themselves independently. Tamar doesn't have that option. She's fully dependent on a husband or a male child to supply for her in this culture. So it's not unusual for Judah to tell Onan to fulfill this responsibility, but we see in the text, Onan's, he's not dumb. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going on, and he says, whatever male child I produce, whatever children are produced from this, they aren't mine. And if, if a child comes from this, then that child then takes a double portion of what Judah has, is doubly blessed. But if I don't produce a child, guess who becomes the firstborn? Me. Onan would have jumped in line as the firstborn in that sense, because his older brother is dead, and he would have received more wealth, more possessions from his father. So while Tamar would secure security and stability for herself through the birth of a child, Onan's like, there's nothing in this for me. I'm not doing it. What should have happened here, but what doesn't happen, is that Onan would have married Tamar. There's no indication in the text that Onan actually marries her. He doesn't marry her, but he's happy. He's more than happy to go in and have sex with her. Verse 9 makes clear this wasn't a one-time event, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, this could have been going on for months, could have been going on for years, that whenever he went into her, the ESV puts it eloquently, he would waste his seed, he would waste his semen on the ground. Why? Bible tells us. It says, to not give offspring to his brother. He did not want to see an heir born because he wanted everything for himself. So every time he went in to have sex with this woman, he received sexual gratification but didn't do the one thing he was supposed to do. The one responsibility he had, he refused. I think it's safe to say he was a selfish jerk. He cared about himself. There are many other descriptions we could give, but we'll stick with selfish jerk. That's, that's safe for the context. Children or no children in the room. He's happy to exploit Tamar for her body. He's happy to exploit her for the physical enjoyment and the benefits of sex, but when he has one responsibility, he says, nope, not doing that. I refuse. And in his eyes, there's nothing wrong with it. There's, there's nothing in it for him. So he just says, 
Why would I sacrifice what I know is mine in order to benefit someone else? Profoundly selfish. Tamar in this situation is in true need. This isn't just a Tamar wants a child. Tamar needs a child. Tamar needs a child to survive, and so Onan is already in a difficult situation, and he's just abusing that situation. And while I I don't think we can say this was sexual abuse, because there's no indication this wasn't consensual, I think we can say Tamar is a victim of Onan abusing the situation for his own gain. Tamar is a victim to his selfishness. It is truly nothing new under the sun. Onan's cavalier attitude towards sex mirrors our culture's attitude towards sex. Onan's quite progressive in his views, actually. He says, sex is just a self-centered thing. It's all about me. And our culture says the exact same thing. Sex is just all about me. You can find articles, you can find videos of people bragging about body counts of how many people they've slept with. Like, that's something to be proud of. People don't want the responsibilities of sex, and I'm not only talking about children. The context in this is raising and and having a child, but I'm not only talking about that in our culture. People don't want the responsibility of having to be emotionally and intimately invested in someone else when it comes to sex. Our culture views sex as just getting something enjoyable for myself without needing to care about anyone else involved. Now, this is one of the main reasons why I think you would you see pornography being so popular. There's no need to have or care about the person on the screen. There's no intimate emotional relationship between that you and that person on the screen because in a few minutes you're passing on to the next person on the screen. So it doesn't matter who that person is. $97 billion a year is spent on pornography worldwide. $3,000 a second each day. It's an outgrowth of this sexual misconduct in our culture, but it's also a reality of this sexual selfishness in our culture. When sex is all about me, it doesn't matter that the person on the screen is being exploited. It doesn't matter when when I'm involved in this that, that that person may not even really want to be involved in that. They just feel like they have to be. And if we think, well, pornography is a world problem, pornography is a church problem is too. It's a church problem too because we're not immune to that. You can view statistics and put as much weight into those statistics as you want, but it's likely a third of people within churches are addicted to pornography. It's not just a world problem, and this is both married, unmarried, men and women that struggle with this. My plea to anyone listening, if, if you are struggling with sexual sin, if you are struggling with pornography, struggling with sexual sin in any way, the call from this text as we read it is to simply repent. Pornography will rob you of joy. It will st- distort your view of men and women. It will have you believe that men and women are just tools to be used for your own sexual gratification and will ultimately destroy your relationship and will dest- your relationships with other people and it will just ultimately destroy you. So when we read and we work through passages like this and we see overt sin like this, it's a call for us to repent, to turn away from our sin. We read earlier beginning of our worship, 1 Corinthians 6, 
where Paul says that Corinthians were sexually immoral, but he says, but such were some of you. That's our story as believers. Our story as believers is that although we are sinners, we repent and we believe and turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So such were some of us. Even at Eternal City Church, sinners that we are, we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's our story when we repent and we turn and believe in Jesus Christ. But Onan, he wasn't interested in a deep, intimate relationship with his wife. He was just interested in a physical gratification to the detriment of his brother's wife. And imagine for a moment how Tamar felt in all of this. Every time they had sex, she had to be thinking, maybe today's the day he does what he's supposed to do. That day never came. Each time they had sex, she had to be wondering, is is this the time where I'll actually be able to have a child? And it never would happen for her. Every single time. Again, this could have been going on for months, possibly years. We don't know. But it wasn't just once. It was time and time again where she had to go through this emotional experience, knowing she's just being exploited, knowing she's just being used for her body. Side note, real quick. Don't use Onan's actions to build a sexual ethic. People do this. People look at this text and say, well, this is... This is the reason why contraceptions are bad, or this is the reason why different sexual methods to avoid having children are bad. This, this text isn't here to tell us how to procreate. It's here to expose the sin of someone who is doing something evil and wicked in the eyes of God, and God struck him dead for it. You know, Onan's selfishness extends beyond just physical exploitation. Who knew what Onan and Tamar were doing. Two people, Onan and Tamar. Who knew what Onan was doing and and not doing as a brother-in-law? Two people, Onan and Tamar. Everyone looking from the outside into their relationship thought everything was happening normally. They thought Onan is the the good brother-in-law who's doing what he's supposed to do. He's sacrificing of himself for the benefit of Tamar, for the benefit of of his brother. Meanwhile, he's spilling his semen on the ground in complete violation of wickedness to God. But everyone looking in thought, he's doing the right thing. There must be something wrong with Tamar. She can't get pregnant. This culture, there was a huge stigma on women who could not bear children. You've seen it in Genesis already with Sarah and Rebecca and, and Rachel who, who were unable to conceive. And so even Rachel and Sarah are mocked for this by people. Huge stigma back in this culture if you were unable to have children. So not only is he exploiting her physical body for his sexual gratification, he's exploiting her reputation in front of everyone that they know that there's something wrong with this woman. I'm doing my part. I'm having sex with her. She just can't get pregnant. And so now her reputation is tarnished. As people look at her and think, Tamar is just just no good. There's something wrong with her. You know, our selfishness can be just as destructive to those closest to us. When we are selfish in that way, we can abuse others. We can abuse the value that they bring to us and trample on them for our own benefit and our own good. 
And so we don't sacrifice for the good and the benefit of other people because in our selfishness and in our pride, sacrifice hurts. Sacrifice means it, it takes something from us and we don't want to give that up. And so we are selfish and we hold on to those things thinking, I want what's good for me rather than what's good for my family, my church, my neighbors, my coworkers, my community. While they could have something better if I sacrifice, no, I'm just caring about myself right now. A couple practical ways that I think we can combat selfishness and live selflessly, and then we'll move on to the rest of the story. First, learn to overlook an offense. It's not easy to do. And I'm not saying to simply ignore when someone has sinned against you. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is learn to not immediately jump to your own defense all of the time whenever there's a critical word said. Whenever something is said to you that you don't like, you don't have to immediately jump down someone's throat and correct them. Learn to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 actually talks about this and it says, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. When we confront sin, it shouldn't be done in pride. It shouldn't be done defending ourselves because the reality is God is the one who will ultimately defend us. God is the one who will defend our honor. God is the one who will take care of, of all of our offenses. And the Bible says that, it is, that he is the one. Vengeance is his, not us. So we don't need to stand there every time we receive an offense and immediately go on the offensive to uphold our honor. God will uphold our honor for us. Our worth and our honor and our value rests in God, not in the opinions of other people. Second, be okay not being noticed. It's okay to not be the dominant voice in the opinion in every conversation and every relationship you have in your life. It's okay to not be noticed. It's okay to allow, as an act of kindness on your part, someone else to have an opinion and someone else to be engaged in conversation. And, and when we do those acts of kindness in that situation or others, don't boast about it. Don't point out to everyone how great you are by being kind to them. Sure, it's nice to be told when we've done something well, if we're praised for our gifts, but we're not in a competition to see who receives the highest praise from anyone else here. That's not why we live and be, to receive praise from others. It's nice to be told and praised for our gifts, but ultimately remember those gifts and the abilities that you have to do and be is because of God ultimately anyway. They're not your gifts. They're God's gifts that he's given to you. Last one, I'm sure there are more, but I'm just sticking to three. Slow down long enough to see other people's needs. We have and live in such a busy, crazy world. Our lives are so filled with activity that we don't even stop for a second to see the needs of other people, let alone try to meet the needs of other people. We don't even notice them because we're so focused on ourselves and what we have going on in our lives that we can't even see the needs that other people have. So one way to be selfless and to combat selfishness is to slow down long enough to see other people and their needs. Let's move on to the story. Verse 10, there was another person who knew what Onan was doing and it was God. 
And verse 10, just like, his, just like what happened to his brother, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Onan struck dead for his wickedness, and Judah at this point has to be wondering, what in the world is going on here? Two sons dead. Who knows what's going to happen with the third? The Bible is very clear. Judah is nervous about his third son's future. So he says to Tamar, go away, live in your father's house. My third son, Shalah, he is just not old enough. It's possible he wasn't. Maybe he was just a child at the time. We don't know. There's no reason to suspect Judah's lying. But what we do know is that Judah has no intention of marrying his third son off to Tamar. Has no intentions of it. He's concerned for his family line. He's concerned for the welfare of his third son. And so he's not going to give him over to Tamar like he should have. And ultimately... He's not fulfilling the obligation, the responsibility he has as a father. When, when Tamar married into his home, he is now her father. He has a responsibility to care for her as a father would care for his daughter. And yet he is giving up that responsibility saying, I'm not doing it. Go back and live with your own dad. Go be a widow in his home. A complete lack of regard for his role as a father and as a man. In reality, he's not being a man. He's being a boy. He's being a child. He has responsibilities in front of him he should take, and he refuses to take them. And the, the text says that he's afraid. He doesn't want to take this responsibility because he's afraid. And the reality is men are allowed to be afraid. Men, we can be afraid. It's okay to be scared. But by the grace of God, when it comes to providing for and protecting the women in our lives, by God's grace and God's strength, we should overcome that fear and care for the women in our lives. Men, that, that's our responsibility as men, is to care for and provide for and protect the women that God has given us. Judah fails in that because of his fear, because of his nervousness, he sends Tamar away. Now I wish, at this point, the end of the story was here, we could do some application and we could just move on with our days, but it is not. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his, shep, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is in the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and he had not been given to her in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her from the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil she put on the garments of her widowhood. You know, when you're going through seminary, they don't tell you you're going to preach 
this passage. Um, they don't tell you you're going to preach this stuff. But again, here we are. Tamar decides, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. After finding out Judah's wife has died, he was traveling, she waited for him, dresses up as a prostitute, Judah pursues her. Not knowing it's Tamar, he has sex with her, they conceive a child. The interesting part of Genesis 38 is it doesn't offer up an evaluation of Tamar's actions. The Bible never critiques her. I think it's safe to say that we shouldn't view what she does as normative. This isn't a model for us to follow. If you're being exploited and abused, you should just go sin in, a, in an incredibly overt, opaque fashion. You should not do that. It would have been wrong, it would be wrong for someone to, as a response to being sinned against, to then just sin. But two things can be true at the same time. If anyone is commendable in this story, it's Tamar. She is bold, she is cunning, she is clever. Desperate, that's a good word, she is desperate. She feels like she has no other recourse. She's been living with her father for who knows how long. The third-born son has grown. She knows that, the, that Shayla is not being given to her. What is rightfully hers is not being done. She's being treated poorly, and so she takes matters into her own hands. This injustice that's been done by Onan and now Judah has happened, and she says, well, I'm going to do what I have to do. Again, I'm not advocating for us to follow her actions or use her actions as a model of any kind, but if anyone in this story is doing the right thing, it's Tamar. She is doing, undoing the injustice that has been done to her. I don't think there's another way to read the text because the Bible doesn't condemn her. The Bible doesn't say she is wrong. In the midst of this sinful, chaotic, crazy story, there's one person who is seeking right, and it is Tamar. She even remains loyal to this family that's abused her. The Bible just points to thing after thing in Tamar's life where it's like, she did this, she didn't necessarily want to, but of everybody involved, she's the one who's right. Notice she waits until Judah is no longer married. She doesn't immediately do this and cause him to commit adultery of any kind. She waits until he's looking for sexual intimacy and fulfillment from somewhere else. She ditches her widow's clothing, dresses as a prostitute, puts on a veil. The veil is simply there to um, disguise her identity. It's not a matter of prostitutes in that time wore veils. It's just a matter of she wanted to disguise who she was. She does it effectively. Because the, the text kind of indicates that Judah wouldn't have slept with her if it hadn't been for the fact that he didn't know who it was. What's interesting is the, the place where they meet, Anaim, actually means opening of the eyes. And it's ironic because Judah's eyes are completely closed to what's actually happening. His eyes are not opened. Tamar's name literally means palm tree, carries the idea of beautiful or fruitful. So this, this beautiful woman, she, for the first half of this chapter, has been passive, has been obedient. 
She passively agrees to this relationship with Onan where she's being sexually exploited. She obeys her father-in-law who says, just go and live with your father. And knowing that she's not going to be given over to the third-born son, she's being deceived, she's being tricked. But when she finally realizes what's happening in all of this, she swings into action, even to the extent of prostituting herself. Nothing in the text suggests that she wants to do this. She feels like she has to. She has no other recourse. And again, nothing in the text indicates that she's condemned for it. Her actions, if we want to compare and contrast people, a bold, cunning woman does what she needs to to make things right, whereas a cowardly, fearful man does what's wrong to cover up and get away from the thing that he knows to do is right. Their encounter on the road is as unromantic as you can get. Judah comes up to her and says, can I have sex with you? She says, what will you give me? And he says, a goat. <laughs> the most unromantic exchange that you can think of happens here. But you know, she's very clever because she says, while I'm waiting for that goat, I need some collateral. Give me something. And she says, give me your signet, give me that cord and that staff. The signet for them was like a personal identifier. This would be the equivalent in our day of leaving your driver's license and a credit card in a brothel or a strip club. That, that's the equivalent of this. Tamar becomes pregnant from this sexual encounter with her father-in-law, goes back to her widow's clothes, goes back to her father's house, and we proceed with the rest of the story. Verses 20 to 23, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was in Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things she owns or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. So Judah sends his friend back to deliver the payment to this prostitute. But of course, Tamar is no longer there. She's long gone. No prostitute to be found. And Judah is so embarrassed by this whole entire thing, he tells his friend, just let it go. Don't worry about it. Don't search for her anymore. Don't worry about it. He's concerned about his reputation. He even says in here, he doesn't want to be laughed at. Just stop what you're doing or they'll laugh at us. So concerned for his own reputation. He even goes so far as to say at the end of 23, you see, I sent this young goat and you didn't find her. It's his way of saying, I tried. I put an effort in. I tried to pay for this service. So if anyone comes asking why you didn't give a goat to the prostitute, tell them I tried. He's so concerned to keep his reputation clean, yet he's ignoring the childless widow that he's left in disgrace. He would rather make things right with a prostitute on the street than his own daughter-in-law that he's cast aside and left alone. His sin would be exposed, though. Verses 24 to 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, 
has been immoral. However, she is pre- moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. And she was being brought out and sent out to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shalah, and he did not know her again. Tamar's starting to show. She's pregnant with twins, Judah's twins. Judah hears about it, immediately calls for her death. No questions about what happened, no concerns about what happened to her, just says, go take her outside the city and burn her. Judah wants her dead. We don't know his entire motivations, but I think we have to just come to the conclusion Judah's a hypocrite. Tamar's been sexually immoral. She's pregnant. Kill her. Meanwhile, three months earlier, he's the one sleeping with her, impregnating her. He just shoved aside his own conscience. He shoved aside what he knew he had done that was wrong and condemned his daughter-in-law to death. We're so good at this as sinful people. It's so easy for us to just point the finger at other people, look at their sin and say, how could you do that? Look at someone's sin with condescension and with ridicule and say, I would never sin like you sinned. If that's our attitude when we hear other people have fallen into sin, we have pride in our lives that we're dealing with. That pride's not doing you any favors. It reminds me of the story in Luke 18 of the Pharisee praying and he thanks God. He says, Thank you that I'm not like these other sinners, especially this tax collector here. The hypocrisy, the arrogance, the pride in his life. We can be so hypocritical, and we can be so hypercritical of other people. We're looking at the sins of others, and we're putting them under a magnifying glass to condemn them, and yet we're involved, if not in that very same sin, the sin that we have ourselves that we've never repented of. In that story in Luke 18, the tax collector gives what I think should be our prayer. When we see other people sin and when our own sin is exposed, our prayer should be like his, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. At this point, Judah hasn't learned repentance yet. I had to think, too, that Judah kind of sees an out here. The situation he's in, he's fearful of, he's not happy about, he's nervous about. He's afraid that his third son's going to die. He's lost two already. Tamar's just this annoying problem. He hears, oh, she fell into sexual sin. Here's an out. Kill her. The problem goes away. He, he wanted to just get off the hook, but Tamar isn't ready to let him get off the hook. At the 11th hour, she is being pulled out of the city, ready to be burned to death. She finally speaks up for herself, and she says, Father, I have this signet. I have this cord. I have this staff. The owner of these things is the one who impregnated me. Can you identify them? Whose are they? The word translated here, that phrase that talks about, can you identify this, or the word identify in verse 25, it's the same word that's actually used in the last chapter, where Jacob identifies the coat that's been torn and dipped in blood somewhat ironic that the the very same process through which 
Judah and his brother's sin was covered up and they didn't face the consequences of the sin they committed against Joseph, that same process is being used to expose him for his own sin. He immediately sees the items. He says, yep, those are mine. That's my driver's license. That's my credit card. That's my phone. That's my signet. That's my cord. That's my staff. They're mine. He's been found out. And the words he says, she is more righteous than I. Judah confesses his sin. He confesses his sin of withholding his son from Tamar, and Tamar ultimately is vindicated. And we see the outcome, the last few verses of the chapter, 27 to 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand. The midwife took it, tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Tamar is pregnant with twins. This unusual labor happens where technically Zerah is the firstborn, even though he's fully born second. How that happens, I don't know. But it fits a theme in a narrative of Genesis where the, the firstborn is often overlooked in favor of the younger. We saw that with Abel and Seth instead of Cain. We saw it with Isaac instead of Ishmael, Jacob instead of Esau, Joseph instead of Reuben, and even Judah instead of Reuben, and now Perez over Zerah. Because Perez will be blessed by God as the younger again, because if we go forward in Scripture to the book of Ruth, from Perez comes a man named Boaz. From Boaz comes a man named Jesse, and from Jesse comes a man named David. Not the oldest in the family, but in fact the youngest of the family, and he would become king of Israel. And centuries later would come a greater king in Israel, Jesus, the king of kings. So from this sordid affair, from this odd union between Judah and Tamar, comes Jesus, who is called the Christ. Look at what we'd miss if we'd skipped over chapter 38. <laughs> Sinfulness, wickedness filled this story, but from one of the ugliest chapters in the entire Bible comes the beauty of Jesus Christ. It is shocking to think about. We're going to go through Joseph's story in the coming weeks, and you see a man who is virtuous, who is good, and you have to stop and think it somewhere along the way. Why didn't God choose him? Instead... God chose Judah. Why? Of all people, Judah would be the one who would carry forward the covenant God made with Abraham. And while Joseph in the, in the coming chapters will physically save the world, it's from Judah that the whole world would be blessed. The line of kings come through Judah. The, the king of kings comes through Judah. Genesis 49 actually talks about this. It says that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. That's Jesus. And we have to realize as we look at this passage, as this chapter, that, that God works even in our sinfulness. Sin doesn't work outside of the providence of God. 
God uses the very sinful habits and sinful behaviors of his people to bring about his promises and his plan. It was true for Judah and Tamar, and it's true for us. Now, this is no license to go and sin and be immoral and do what we want, but it is an acknowledgement that God and his plans are not disrupted by our sin. He works and he does and he uses even our sins for his good purposes. What tremendous grace God gives to Judah. Judah deserves no favor. He is selfish. He's scared. He's a child masquerading as a man, and yet God in his grace chooses him to carry forward this covenant. What grace he receives. But this isn't simply a story of grace. It's a story of change. Judah stands out in this chapter because of his sin, but he also stands out because of his repentance. He says there, she is more righteous than I. I should have given her my son, but I didn't. I should have loved her like a father loves his daughter, but I loved her like a man loves a prostitute instead. But he didn't just say all of those things and then move on. He didn't just say, oh, I blew it and walked away. The end of 26 provides an interesting note where he says, he did not know her again. He had every right within that culture to take her as his wife and continue to sleep with her, continue to have sex with her. After all, she was apparently a beautiful person. He had every right to do that. And yet the text says he never did it again. He was confronted with his sin, and when he confessed that sin, he repented of it, and he turned away from it and didn't go back to it. You see, what matters in the story when we think of Judah is not how he started, and what matters in, to God in our story is not how we started. We sin. We sin every day. We probably sin today. But our story isn't just, did you sin? But when you are confronted in your sin, did you change? Did you repent? When was the last time you told God, I've done something wrong? When was the last time you confessed to God sin in your life and you asked him to change you? Maybe you feel out of control spiritually. I know kids and... Um, their birthdays and stuff still do pinatas. I've observed that over the last few years. But I think they've changed how they do it a little bit. Back in the day, parents had a brilliant idea to not only allow kids to take a bat or a stick and hit something hanging from the ceiling, but they decided we're going to blindfold you and spin you around in circles first. <laughs> so it's, it's no surprise when the kid goes swinging wildly and he's missing the pinata and, and can't hit anything. It's no surprise kids are getting cracked across the face with broomsticks because you, you made them dizzy and blindfolded them. They can't see what they're hitting. They can't see what they're doing. All they know is that in this pinata is candy and I want that thing and so they're going to swing with all of their might. But have you ever felt like that spiritually? Have you ever felt like that in your relationship with God? You're just swinging wildly. You're spinning around. You have no idea what's happening. You're just kind of completely out of control. But then God, through the Spirit, shines a bright light on that. He exposes that sin. But what happens when that sin is exposed is crucial. Because oftentimes when we're living in darkness and the lights get flicked on, what do we want to do? Go back to the darkness. 
It's like when we're sleeping and someone hits the lights. You want to cover your eyes. You want to get under the covers. You want to cover your face with a pillow. You want to get back to darkness because it's where we're comfortable. And when our, when our sin is exposed, when the lights are turned on, what happens next is crucial. And if we rest and enjoy and see God's grace to take the blindfold off and see how far we are and how far we've gotten away from God, it's in that repentance and in his grace that he draws us back to himself. That's the important response to our sin being exposed. You know, Genesis is full of rotten people. They are misfits. But the reality is we are too. Some of them changed. Judah changed. He doesn't make an excuse. He doesn't look at Tamar and say, well, you know, you tricked me. You can't fault me for this. You deceived me. All he says is, Tamar, you are more righteous than I am. And he changes. The story of Judah is a rebuke to all of us, but it is also a hope for all of us because just like him, selfish, hypocritical sinners that we are, we can change. There is hope for change. Because it's not about how Judah started, but it's about how he finished. And it's not about how we start, but it's about how we finish. I want to come back to grace one more time and then we'll wrap up. If you've ever gone shooting, um, shot a gun before, you're trained as you do this to look down the, the barrel of the gun. And you might have a target off in the distance, however many yards away that it is. But you're trained as you're looking down the barrel of this gun to keep what's in the distance blurry and keep focus on what's close, which is the sights of that gun. So you want what's in the distance to not even be able to tell what's going on down there. You just want to focus on that sight, what's near to you. Judah received an incredible amount of grace, but Tamar did as well. Tamar is Jesus Christ's great, 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 great grandmother. 30 generations after Tamar comes Jesus. Because of her bold, courageous determination, Jesus Christ was born into this world. I told you, this, this is a story about a courageous mother at the end of the day. So it kind of fits into Mother's Day. We got there eventually. It's a little awkward. Some spots along the way were like, I don't know about that. But we got there eventually. Just like looking down the barrel of a gun, Tamar didn't see what was happening in the future. What was in the future was blurry. All she saw was right in front of her. And what she saw in front of her was, I have a right to be a mother, I have a right to be cared, well, cared for well, and I am going to pursue that. And again, I don't recommend modeling her behavior. The Bible doesn't condemn her. And I don't think we should either. She was given grace. In fact, not only should we not condemn her, Matthew chapter 1 actually mentions her in the genealogy of Jesus. She's one of five women mentioned in that genealogy of Christ. Each of them bold, determined mothers. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Four of them aren't even Jews. At least four of them were involved in some type of sexual scandal, possibly five, depending on how you want to interpret Ruth and Boaz and their late night encounter. Tamar sleeps with her father-in-law. Rahab is a prostitute. Bathsheba has an adulterous relationship with David. Mary seems to be pregnant outside of marriage. There's no mention of 
Sarah, no mention of Rebecca, no mention of Esther, Abigail, any of these women, just these five, who you look at their stories and you think they're misfits. They don't belong here, and yet God includes them. What grace God gave to Tamar. This is an incredible story of God's grace, and I want to just ask a couple questions before we pray. Will you believe this grace for yourself? The same grace that God gave to Judah, the same grace that God gave to Tamar is the same grace that he gives to us, founded and rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Will you believe this grace for yourself? Our stories are sordid, sinful tales. Thankfully, everything we've gone through in our sin is not written down in a book for everyone to read 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years later. But they're no less real. Our stories are raw, are real, they're sordid, they're sinful, but yet God gives grace in the midst of all of these things. As we're swinging around blindfolded as a child swings at a pinata, trying to figure out this spiritual life, God is giving us grace. He's exposing our sin to the realities of the gospel. And he says, everything you repent of, every sin you give up, every change you make is worth it because I am greater than all of those things. That's what God tells us in his grace. Will you believe the grace that God has given us to change and realize it's not how you start your story, but it's how you finish your story. That's important. Last question. Will you allow grace for others? The same grace God is giving you is the same grace he's extending to others. So even those who have hurt you, who have wronged you, that you see in sin, are you willing to extend grace to them as God works to change them as well? Let's pray. Father, your grace is amazing. Grace takes the ugliest of situations and brings about good. We are thankful for that. Thank you for Jesus. God, his, his genealogy, his ancestry is filled with sinful people making sinful choices, but you've used all of them to bring about salvation. God, our past is full of sinful choices, and yet you, in your goodness and your graciousness, in your sovereignty, have chosen us to receive this salvation. Thank you. We praise you for the salvation we have with Christ. We thank you for the reminder that we will take now in communion as we celebrate and remember Jesus. Thank you for the salvation we have through the grace of our Lord. Amen. Thanks for taking a minute to watch this video. My name is Pastor Chris Moran. I'm one of the pastors at Eternal City Church in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania. Eternal City is a church that values biblical authority. We teach the Bible verse by verse, week by week, and we are seeking to eventually preach the whole way through the Bible. We believe that Jesus is God as he claimed to be, and his person and work are the center of the entire Bible. We believe that the Great Commission is still relevant today for Christians, that Christians are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded. Eternal City is a church that values diversity in that we are a church of all kinds of people, cultures, classes, colors, and capacities. We are a church that values community and we seek to see our members hold one another accountable and build each other up in discipleship. We are a church that has a plurality of leadership for pastors and deacons who are servants who serve under 
the pastors. If this sounds like an interesting church to you, we would love for you to visit our website to find out more about us, eternalcity.org, or come visit us on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m., 1300 Swissville Avenue, Wilkinsburg, PA, 15221. Hope to see you soon.